We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Salah. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it's God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Those are the first seven verses of Psalm 75, which is uh, along with Psalm 76, are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, May the 21st, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Uh, We are continuing our look at the book of um, Wisdom, chapter 19, verses 1 to 8, and then 18 to 22. And remember from yesterday, what's going on here is the writer, who some presume to be Solomon, but but there's no consensus on that. That's the reason it's not in the Bible. It's in the Apocrypha instead. Um, But he's he's giving a history, uh, a salvation history, essentially, uh, of the Jews and in order to uh, lay the groundwork for his further arguments about the greatness of God and the sovereign nature of God. It's, it's very similar, as I said yesterday, to, to things that uh, Paul says in, in uh, Romans 1, where he's arguing that, that there is no excuse <laughs> for not recognizing God, at least. So he says, but the ungodly were assailed to the end by pitiless anger, for God knew in advance even their future actions. He's talking here about the Egyptians, particularly Pharaoh. That though they themselves had permitted thy people to depart and hastily sent them forth, they would change their minds and pursue them. And that's exactly what Pharaoh did. But it's because God enticed them him to do it in so many ways because they were going to the wilderness and then God said now loop back around and 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 go back so that Pharaoh can see you so that he'll think you're confused and he'll come after you so that's exactly what they did and 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 so when he says God knew in advance their future actions that's part of at least what he's talking about for while they were still busy at mourning, the, the Egyptians, and were lamenting at the graves of their dead after the plague of the firstborn, they reached another foolish decision and pursued as fugitives those whom they had begged and compelled to depart. For the fate they deserved drew them on to this end and made them forget what had happened, in order that they might fill up the punishment which their torment still lacked, and that thy people might experience an incredible journey, but they themselves might meet a strange death." that strange death, being drowned in the Red Sea. The, I mentioned yesterday about the fire in the water. What they believe is that pillar of fire um, that followed the Israelites, the pillar of fire by day, or pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, what they believe is, is that, that that pillar of fire went into the midst of the Red Sea. And so not only did they drown, it was also boiling hot when they went in there so that there would be no survivors of this. Now, the one thing that you have to remember, and I always try and make sure that I say, is is that, that they are not to take delight in the death of Pharaoh and his army because they're human beings. There's a muted sort of a celebration. You're not allowed to, to sort of rejoice and, and spike the ball over those deaths because those lives matter to God. They're people created in the image of God. They may have done wicked and evil things, but at the same time, there's a humanity that has to be respected there. And so it's important they always kind of realize that <clears throat> so that, that their tor- what they might fill up the punishment which their torment still lacked. And the proof is that they didn't repent. They continued to come after God's people. 
in spite of all that they had seen and all that they experienced, including the death of the firstborn. So, so they weren't done yet with their wickedness. And he says, not, not just the sign to them, but and that thy people might experience an incredible journey, but they themselves meet a strange death. For the whole creation in its nature was form, fashioned anew, complying with your commands that your children might be kept unharmed. So the, the, the elemental forces of nature, the, the Red Sea itself, is pushed back, and then they go across on dry ground because the wind blows and dries the ground. So it's held back, and they go through, and then when at God's command, it comes back and closes in over the Pharaoh and his army. The cloud was seen overshadowing the camp and dry land emerging where water had stood before, an unhindered way out of the Red Sea and a grassy plain out of the raging waves where those protected by your hand passed through as one nation after gazing on marvelous wonders. And it's important that we always recognize that, that God did this miraculous thing and, um, and brought them through this, but they saw all the things God did when they were in Egypt, and it gave them the courage and the, the fortitude to go forward and leave Egypt and go out into the wilderness. Now, that didn't last forever, right? At three days later, they're already angry and, <laughs> and disappointed because there's no water, and then there's no food, and then, well, they send spies into the land instead of just going and doing what God told them to do, and they came back discouraged in spite of all that they had seen. And then when they finally take the land, 40 years later, when Joshua is the leader, they come in, and the first thing they're told when they come in, when the, when the new spies go into Jericho, is, is that we've been afraid of you all forever and ever because we heard of what your Lord did in the wilderness and to the Egyptians. We've been trembling in fear all that time. When, and that had to have been the worst possible thing those spies could have heard because what it said is, is that we blew it for 40 years. We could have come into the land, and it, they might even have just thrown down everything and surrendered to us if we had done that. So it's, it's a sad, sad moment in time when they hear that. But, but what have you seen God do in your life? I've seen several miracles, literally, in my life. And so is that what sustains my faith whenever it gets weak, whenever I'm going through difficult times? Do I remember that? Do I remember what God has done, and do I walk then in faith and conviction? Jesus here calls the twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So it's a proclamation with power, and the power is the works that they're given to do. Now, it's an interesting thing to think. I mean, I couldn't call twelve people together and say, look here, I'm going to give you power and authority over demons and curing diseases. Well, nobody would receive that and walk in any faith or conviction when they left. They'd look at me like I was insane, and some of them might call a physician. With Jesus, though, they had seen him do all of these things, so they knew that he had that power. Remember that the, the woman with the uh, issue of blood wanted to touch the hem of his garment in order to, to connect with his power. And, and so she believed that he had the power. The um, Jairus believed that he had the power. And so if he has that power, then he can give that power and authority to them, but they have to receive it in faith. He gives it to us as well. Do we walk in that faith? Do we walk in the conviction that we we do and we have been given that power as a church and as individuals? 
It doesn't mean that you're going to cure and heal anybody. It means that you have the power and the connection to the throne room of grace from which the power flows. You're not using your power. You're calling down Jesus's power in his name. That's the important thing. It's not that we have any of that power in ourselves. It's Jesus gave them that power in order to be able to do these things. But if you receive power from somebody, then it's not your power, right? And so when you receive it, you know that anything that happens thereafter is because of him. And if he gave it, he can also take it. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and don't have two tunics. I mean, when the I went on a mission trip to Haiti, and it was, it was well organized and all that stuff. But the funny thing was is that we, we had to take all kinds of stuff with us. <laughs> we were prepared for millions of different events. I, I went to Rwanda in 2000 and spent three months there. And, and one of the things that I did was I made sure I was well prepared with things I wouldn't be able to acquire once I got to Rwanda. So I carried with me all kinds of medication kind of stuff and a bunch of toilet paper. Um, and, and all this other stuff, because I, I knew I wouldn't be able to acquire it when I got there. I wanted to be well prepared. I didn't want to have to depend on anybody for anything. Jesus tells them to do exactly the opposite. Don't do much at all. Just go. Just go. And then I'll make sure that you're provided for along the way through other people. It was more important to him that they be provided for by other people than it was that they be well prepared on the way there. And he says, whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart. So so remain in a place, and as long as you remain in a place, if they welcome you there, then stay there. Stay there until you leave that town. And wherever they don't receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And Paul did the same thing. It's, it's the way Paul worked his missionary journeys. right now. And now Paul would provide for himself. You can see all through his writings that he didn't really want to ask anybody to provide for him. He was able to provide for himself by tent making. And so he would engage himself in that activity when he was doing his missionary journeys. He, would, he wanted them to provide for other people, but not so much for himself. So they, the disciples, departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So they did what Jesus told them to do, and they also were able to do these healing things. And then we get a little digression here. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. He heard what the disciples were doing, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Now, what, what do they actually mean by that? There's a strong Jewish belief that's persisted for a very long time in sort of reincarnation of spirits. It might not be the man who has been re- reincarnated, but, but it is the spirit of that one that has come back. And so there's this weird sort of Gnostic, docetist kind of idea that passes through Judaism that I frankly don't understand. And Jesus doesn't refer to it, so I'm not concerned about it. And in fact, when, when they want to know who John the Baptist is, he says, Elijah has already come. And, and, I, and I'm positive that what he means there is, is, is the Elijah that was promised in Malachi has come, the one who is the forerunner, because in other places he, he clearly doesn't take that mantle. John doesn't, and Jesus doesn't put the mantle on John. So Herod said, John, I beheaded. 
but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now, in Mark's gospel, Mark tells us that Herod said, it's John the Baptist. Here, what Luke tells us is not that. What he says is that I know who, I know, I headed John. I put an end to that. So who is this? And he wanted to see him, wanted to see Jesus. And now we go back to the story. On their return, the disciples, the apostles is what he calls them here, told them all that they had done. And they were apostles in the sense that they went out and proclaimed. They were, an apostle is one sent with a message. So the, the 12 were disciples, but they were in this case, they were apostles because they went by themselves with this message to the world. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go to the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we're here in a desolate place. I mean, they've just come back (laughs) from this missionary journey, but, but they believe there's certain things that are sort of a bridge too far. He said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we, we've no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. Where do you get the money for that is essentially what he's saying. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. What we see in this is that the disciples believe, as I said, that there's certain things that are bridged too far. You can't make enough food. It's not possible for these people to be fed. They need to go find places to eat and things and places to stay, period, end of sentence. And and this is... Um, it's is a legitimate concern at this point in Jesus's ministry with them, but he shows them something else that he's greater than that he that he's able to do things that nobody else can even begin to imagine or explain. This is more than healing. This is something way more than healing in so many ways. It's one of the most extraordinary miracles that he ever does, and that's the reason so many people find even even Christians find it hard to believe these things. So you get guys like William Barclay, whose commentary says, "Well, what happened really was they would have all carried their own sort of lunch pails with them, and and some of them probably had eaten theirs. And so when Jesus does this, they see his faith and they begin to share what they have. It's a considerably lesser miracle." <laughs> If you teach people to share, and in fact, it's a nonsensical explanation because in John six, what happens at the end of that is they want to make him king. Well, you don't make you don't want to make somebody king if all he did was teach other people to share. So, in the epistle today, coming to the end of Romans here, he's Paul says, "We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves." And this is the continuing on his thoughts about the weaker brother and how we we shouldn't do anything that's going to cause our brother to stumble. We need to be careful about the way we live because we don't want our brother to stumble. Those who are in the kingdom, we don't want to see fall out of the kingdom because of us. Now, that's not the same as losing your salvation because what what I would say is is that you didn't have it to start with. Um, you, you didn't have what you thought you had and what it looked at some level to have had, but you don't ever want to be the cause of that. You don't want ever, anybody ever look up and go, well, you know, I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for John doing X, Y, and Z, and, and therefore I thought it was okay for me too. No, what he's already said is if, if God's convicted you of something, then, then go with that conviction. 
He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ didn't please himself, but as it's written, the approaches of those who reproached you fell on me. I'll take that. I'll take that punishment. And that's what he does. He's already taken the punishment for us. And so he does it for himself because he didn't have to deal with any of this because he was perfect and blameless in all his ways. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And then he prays, may the God of endurance and encouragement give you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The most important principle Paul has here is unity. But that unity has to be bound together in love. We can all have opinions and think alike on matters, but it doesn't mean that we are of one mind and of one accord, certainly not of one heart. We can still bear grudges against each other, even while we share a common belief. We see that in politics all day, every day, so much infighting and all that kind of stuff. Paul says, don't let that be characteristic of who you are, but be of one accord that you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. How has he welcomed us? He welcomed us as brothers and sisters, fellow heirs. For I tell you that Christ became a servant. Here again, we go back to servanthood, and that's what Jesus' final message. If you wanted to know what's Jesus' final message to his disciples, the one thing that he wanted to impart to him before his death, he's to serve one another. Don't don't seek out greatness and power. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, the, the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it's written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. He's saying God's plan always was to include these others. He had to be sent to the circumcised to confirm God's covenant relationship with them. They had to be given an opportunity to reject him in order for the Gentiles to come in. Now, it could have gone the other way around. They could have glorified him. They could have accepted him in the Gentiles. We would have come in in a different way. But now we get to come in as fellow heirs with them and with Jesus. And again, it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. The, the, the expectation always was the Gentiles would come in, but there was a sort of a prideful and triumphalistic streak in that idea. And, and where it comes in and where you can see it is, is that sort of the, the nations will all come and they will see that we're right. You know, they, so they, they hear it that way. I'm not saying God said it that way because he didn't. No, God always had the same plan, and, and that's what um, Solomon, or whoever the author of wisdom is, tells us, that he knew their actions, their future actions, now, in the present. He knew what would happen, and so he plans for these eventualities. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And closes concludes this part of the passage with, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. We know what Jesus has committed to us. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the Holy Spirit to witness to us about the truth that, that his death on the cross was the atoning sacrifice necessary to pay the price for our sins so that we could pass through judgment and have eternal life with him and the Father. That we, that's the truth the Holy Spirit convicts us of. That's the first truth. But there's other truths the Holy Spirit convicts us of as well. But then he also committed to us power 
So we know the truth and we have the power. And now what he says is the God of hope is there to fill us with all joy and peace in believing. And that's the important thing that Christians need is joy and peace in believing. In order that you may abound by hope in the Holy Spirit. And we are to be the most hopeful people on earth. We are not to be the discouraged people. We're not to, to put our heads down like the world has done for the last two years. We're to keep our heads up knowing that in the end, God wins completely.